Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Let me say hello to my good friend, Dr. Christian Leprecht. He's back with us today, Queen's University and Royal Military College international security expert, fellow at the NATO College in Rome. And his most recent book is Security, Cooperation, Governance, published by the University of Michigan Press. Uh, Christian, thank you so much for making time available to us spontaneously yesterday when we ran into our scheduling issues and, and again today. I, I'm so glad to be able to talk to you at a time like this. Thank you so much. Roy, it's always a pleasure and I cherish the opportunity to delve into subjects in a bit more depth with you than is usually possible um, on radio. Yeah, let's, uh, let, let's, let's, let's just get an overview from you now. Uh, the situation as you see it in the Middle East, the, the, the view from 10,000 feet. Well, I think uh, King Abdullah II of Jordan's um, urgent trip to Berlin speaks for itself, uh, asking the German government to intervene um, in the Middle East as a quasi sort of honest broker uh, to try to get everybody talking to one another when it became clear that most of the countries uh, weren't particularly able or interested in talking to the United States. And uh, um, uh, I, I genuinely think that we are sitting in the Middle East on a powder keg, a structural powder keg in terms of the demographic trends, uh, the economic trends, especially after the pandemic, the political trends where many populations, um, uh, where, where many governments are deeply unpopular with their populations. Um, and um, and social trends, as so to say that uh, um, many groups that don't get along with one another and have longstanding grievances against one another uh, that are exacerbated by sort of recent structural trends and uh, and and recent aggression in the region. Um, and uh, I, I just think the uh, we make a grave mistake in the West by trying to impl- impose Western logic and rationality on the Middle East. Um, because those simply do not uh, apply in that environment, which is, makes that environment all the more, more more volatile. So when Israel enters Gaza, and they will, possibly today, maybe tomorrow, maybe in a few days, who knows? Uh, they know, we, we don't. But um, wh- by the way, what's your, what's, your best, what's your best estimate as to when Israel will, in fact, enter Gaza? So um, Israel has, um, on the one hand, been trying to gain the upper hand in the information environment. I think this is part of the reason why Israel has been buying time here, um, uh, because it was clear that initially Hamas was controlling much of the information environment. So trying to get a, a balanced and different narrative in the Middle East, that is extremely important because, of course, most populations don't trust uh, Western media. They don't trust local media. And so they align data points with their worldview. The other is that the IDF, although it likes to talk about its 360,000 reservists, uh, the IDF has a very small cadre of, uh, of, of high-end crack troops uh, that can do extremely difficult operations, such as incursions into occupied territories. But reservists and the IDF more broadly is neither trained nor experienced in urban warfare. And so the IDF has been trying to 
um, train up those 360,000 reserves in, uh, uh, in, in urban warfare, um, which is perhaps the most difficult um, uh, fighting on the ground that you can imagine in the world today. Uh, and so uh, I guess every day counts when we're trying to make sure that you have the skill sets that you need among soldiers that are in many cases rather wary and reticent of the mission that they'll be about to uh, ask to be carried out. Mm-hmm. So, so there is going to be uh, Israel is going to go into Gaza. We know that there will be a response. There will be a global response. Certainly, a regional response. The governments in the in the region are in tenderhooks right now. Then there's the possibility, maybe the likelihood. You would know better which word to use, of a second front opening with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Can the IDF handle that, or is this going to be the situation where Americans? And they've got two carrier task forces in the region where the Americans put their boots on the ground again, and we return to 1980s realities with U.S. Marines in in Lebanon. So there's two separate issues at play. How effective you can be in large uh, part depends on your intelligence capacity and your visibility of what your adversary is up to. And I think the the IDF's and Israeli intelligence's um, invincibility that had already been somewhat uh, called into question before this uh, as a result of sort of recent operations has really been shattered um, as a result of the surprise attack by Hamas. So this does not instill confidence that the IDF has any better a picture of what Hezbollah uh, might be up to in uh, Lebanon, let alone in Syria. Um, the other is the that that Israel simply doesn't have enough troops and enough assets to engage in a two-front war, let alone a multi-front war, because we're likely also going to see an uprising in the West Bank. Um, and uh, so uh, that will likely mean in order to uh, uh, that that is the IDF is going to need help, and that help is likely going to come from uh, U.S. Marines and Marine assets. And those of us who are old enough will remember the early 1980s. Uh, of course, that did not go well for the United States. Uh, it did not go well for Israel, and it is at least in part responsible for the chaos that we continue to see and live in Lebanon to this day. Who's really um, exploiting this much to their own satisfaction? Iran, definitely? Oh, Iran is definitely uh, laughing all the way here. Um, I mean, look, it's, uh, it got $6 billion out of the United States for five hostages. Uh, and now, um, despite Biden trying to buy uh, stability, it's been able to uh, stoke uh, significant uh, 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 carnage uh, in the Middle East. Um, uh, Iran's objective is to weaken, weaken Israel as a strategic ally, uh, a ground of offensive, which, uh, especially a protracted one, uh, would very much achieve that particular objective. But look, the other people who are laughing uh, are Putin, both because on the one hand, it means the United States uh, is not just distracted in terms of its attention to Ukraine, but we already know, for instance, that uh, the 155 millimeter um, uh, uh, shells that are in such high demand in Ukraine uh, and that are stocked in great number in Israel and where a significant part of that stockpile had already been shipped to Ukraine, those are now going to be not just required in Israel, but that uh, whatever the US uh, produces, much of it is likely going to be diverted to Israel rather than to Ukraine. So that's going to create problems for um 
Ukrainian artillery in uh, in particular in terms of short, shortfalls in ordnance. Uh, but Putin is also um, making the claim of hypocrisy against the West. Um, that is to say that he's accusing Israel of doing in Gaza um, precisely what the West has criticized about Russia doing in Ukraine when it comes to civilian suffering, when it comes to turning off electricity, uh, water, um, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and civilian casualties. But of course, you know, there's no moral equivalence here because uh, in the case of Israel, Israel was heinously uh, attacked, um, uh, women, uh, um, children. Um, and ironically, the people who suffered the most are the people who are the most open to peace with Palestinians, because many of the kibbutzes that were attacked are inhabited by people uh, that tend to be more on the left wing of the spectrum and tend to be very favorable to building relationships uh, with uh, with Palestinians. Um, so, but Putin has, very much, has been quite successful at drawing this equivalency. Uh, and of course, the other country that is laughing here is uh, is President Xi and China, uh, China, which of course, as a result of its economic uh, weakness in in la in recent years, has been significantly weakened in its uh, strategic reach. Uh, but uh, we're invariantly helping out China here uh, by distracting uh, resources uh, from the United States and allies and partners that could be available to continue to contain China that are now being directed to support Israel and to try to maintain some sense of regional uh, stability in the Middle East. So hence you telling us yesterday, this is one of the most dangerous times um, in our lifetimes, and for many people, uh, it is the most dangerous time in their lifetime. Um, I mean, it is certainly um, uh, uh, the most dangerous uh, uh, moment that um, people in the Middle East, uh, and of course, in particular in Israel uh, and in the occupied territories, have lived in recent memory. Um, but it is uh, so dangerous because um, uh, key uh, international adversaries, Iran, Russia, and China all have an interest in uh, stoking chaos, uh, conflict, uh, and carnage um, out of this in the Middle East because they ultimately profit from it. So uh, they will not be helping in terms of achieving uh, stability. Um, and uh, because uh, in the West, uh, ultimately, we have to live with the decisions that Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to make here. Uh, but the West has very little trust in Prime Minister Netanyahu's actions and his own personal political uh, and ideological motivations that are at play here um, that uh, uh, may in and of themselves have an interest in perhaps stoking um, uh, some of the uh, the flames that uh, that have already been set alight here. Um, and so uh, there's a high risk here that um, this becomes a much broader conflict um, where the consequences um, are incalculable, both regionally and international, uh, internationally. So let's bring this home. Uh, Canada, we, we, did, we did have a very significant role to play internationally some decades ago. What about today? I'd just like to ask you, and we talked about this a bit yesterday, Canada, do we have a role or are we a bit player these days in 2023 who nobody really pays attention to, and particularly with Mr. Trudeau as prime minister? Um, and, and he did send two ministers to the peace conference that was called in Cairo by the president of Egypt on Friday. 
So of course, Canada has role because Canada has interests in the region. Those interests are regional stability, and they are containing the conflict so we don't have a broader conflagration, let alone a conflict that could possibly bring the United States into direct conflict with either Russia or China, or perhaps both, or having Russia or China exploit sort of weaknesses that arise as a result of the conflict. Uh, the problem is that Canada has uh, little credibility and has so damaged its reputation, in part because it doesn't have any capabilities or assets to contribute. Uh, look no further than the call last Monday uh, between President Biden and the European members of the G7, um, France, Germany, United Kingdom and Italy. Uh, that call left Canada and Japan out. Um, and uh, look, this was portrayed by the prime minister's office as, you know, no big deal. It's the Quinn talking among themselves. But the reality is uh, that the clear signal is that Canada has nothing to contribute. And so if Canada has nothing to contribute, uh, why would we let them in on the conversation? The fact that, you know, in the 1956, we played this significant role in the Middle East, whereas today um, powers in the region uh, are reaching out to Germany and not to Canada as an honest broker uh, shows that that uh, we simply don't have an ability to shape the terrain um, in the Middle East or elsewhere in the world. And that's tragic because Ken, of course, along with Australia, invented the concept of middle power um, after World War II precisely so that countries such as Canada of medium size uh, would have a say in global affairs because they realized that they have interests at stake. And so Canada abdicating its status uh, as a middle power uh, and not being able to shape this very dangerous security environment of the 21st century uh, and essentially leaving it up in particular to the Americans, I think is a very dangerous gamble because if we look back over the last 20 years, I'm not sure we want to leave international security just up to the Americans. I have about 30 seconds. Uh, what's your greatest fear? Realistic fear. Um, my realistic fear is that we're all sleepwalking into um, a global conflict for which we are unprepared um, and uh, which did we, ultimately we did not see coming and that could have been avoided um, had we been a bit more prudent in our actions, had a bit more foresight and actually have the uh, ways, means and ends to ensure that we can shape the environment uh, rather than being bystanders and uh, letting calamity happen. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 